That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of God. Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We are in a series titled, Jesus Immediately, the Gospel According to Mark. And we are in a bit of a transition passage this morning because we're moving from a collection of parables, which we've looked at in recent weeks, to a collection of miracles. So Mark wants us to understand. He makes this very clear from the very first sentence of his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1. We read the words. This is, this is his goal. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark has a multi-pronged approach. He's wasting no time in helping us to see from a variety of angles that his central character is indeed the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Savior of the world, and the eternal Son of God. And he's showing us that through the wisdom of Jesus' teaching. That's what we've been looking at with the parables. Jesus revealing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to those who belong to him and concealing it from those on whom God's judgment rests because of their hardness and unbelief. But we see the wisdom in the majesty of this son of God, of this towering figure in the pages of Mark, not only through parables, but also now through Miracles. Now, this is not the first miracle in the gospel. You'll remember Jesus casting out the demon in the synagogue and healing the leper. But this is the first nature miracle that Mark records. Mark is inviting us in these verses, inviting us as his hearers and his readers to come along with Jesus and the disciples in the boat. That's what we're going to do this morning. For the next few minutes, we, we are going to climb into the boat with Jesus and the disciples. And if you know the story, if you were paying attention as Diana read it, you know we are in for a wild ride. So climb in with me. I have two simple points. First, Jesus sleeps. We'll see that in verses 38 to 40, uh, 35 to 38. And second, Jesus shouts. That's 39 to 41. Very simple. Jesus sleeps, which is going to be the much briefer point, because that's not where the drama really is focused. Jesus sleeps, and second, Jesus shouts. 
First, Jesus sleeps. Verse 35. That day when evening came. So Mark is describing a single day in the ministry of Jesus. He, he's been teaching the crowds publicly, instructing his disciples privately, and Jesus is exhausted. He's exhausted. And so he, Mark records at the, at the, here in verse 35, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. That is the other side of the Lake of Galilee. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they, that is the disciples, took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. This was no minor disturbance on the surface of the water. This was a torrential storm, a kind of sea quake. The word squall here is, is not a tame word. It's the same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Job 38.1, where after a lot of chapters of complaining, God suddenly appears to Job out of the whirlwind, the storm, the squall. The location of the, the Lake of Galilee, 600 feet below sea level, kind of in a funnel, so it's subject to these sudden downdrafts as, as warm air arises from the basin and cold air comes down from the Golan Heights. All of a sudden it creates this pressure cooker atmospheric environment and it becomes susceptible to these sudden violent storms. We, we don't just know this from the Bible. The, the Sea of Galilee is a real place. I've been to it. And even today, people will talk about how dangerous it can be and how quickly these storms can come upon unsuspecting seamen. So the picture here in verse 37 is of this fishing boat. By the way, in 1986, archaeologists uncovered an intact fishing boat, 27 feet long, and with the help of carbon dating and, and all the rest, were able to uh, say that it was probably original to the first century. So around this time, we can have a, a sense of what these boats were like. They weren't like little dinky canoes, but they're also not ships. They can seat about 15 people. They would have had a little under cabin area, a stern, which we'll see in a moment, come, is featured in this story. But the picture here is of a squall so furious that this fishing boat is bobbing like a bath toy. Waves are crashing over the sides. The boat is becoming waterlogged. The thing is going to capsize at any moment. I mean, you know a storm is bad if veteran seamen, many of these guys have lived their whole lives on this lake if they're freaking out. And that's exactly what these disciples are doing. So we, before we proceed, I, I just want to ask a question of you, ask a question of the text. Who led the disciples into this furious storm? Well, Jesus did. Verse 35. Let 
us go over to the other side. Jesus didn't say that because he's a poor meteorologist, needs to brush up on his forecasting. Jesus knew the forecast better than they did. This is a good reminder for us. We, we, we thought about this back in chapter 1, if you remember, after the baptism of Jesus. Who is it that then thrust him, sent him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Well, it wasn't Satan luring him out. It was the Spirit of God who sent Jesus into the wilderness. It's a similar idea here. Sometimes Jesus spares us from the storm. But other times he sends us right into the eye of it. But don't miss this detail. I mean, if we just leave it at that, you know, you never know if he's going to spare you or send you. The most encouraging detail is that he comes with us. He didn't say to these disciples, Get in this boat, go to the other side. He's in the boat too. He never sends us into the storm alone, even when it feels like he's sleeping while we're screaming. And the other thing to just notice here before we proceed is that how quickly the storm came. The storm came suddenly, which is exactly the way that trials tend to come into our lives. They don't show up on our Google calendar, on our Apple calendar, you know, ah, I got an alert two weeks from today, trial. That's not how it happens, which means that now is the time. Now, I, I recognize some of you are in the storm right now, but for those of you who are not yet in the storm, now is the time when you're still on the shore to prepare for the storm, to strengthen the muscle of faith which was the very muscle that these disciples didn't have, as we'll see. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern. So, so this is in the midst of the, this furious squall. The, the fishing boat, as I said, is bobbing like a bath toy. It's about to capsize. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Don't think of this as some feathered pillow this was probably like the, the sandbag used for ballast in the boat. But he's so tired, so depleted from healing and casting out demons and teaching needy crowds and doing good to people who don't deserve it that he is slumbering like a baby while the boat wobbles and the, the disciples are scrambling for a solution. By the way, remember I've told you guys that, that Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. But he was a close friend of Peter, who was not only one of the twelve, but part of Jesus' inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. Mark is deriving a lot of the material for his gospel from Peter. But every now and then, that becomes more pronounced. The fact that this reads like an eyewitness account. And this is one of those examples. I mean, the attention to detail here in what is a pretty brief story. And we know from Mark, of all the four gospel writers, Mark is the most sparing with details. 
Mark doesn't like to elaborate on things. He doesn't like to spill needless ink. And yet here, there's a lot of needless details. The kind of stuff that you wouldn't include if it didn't really happen. But you can just almost imagine Peter recounting this to Mark and mentioning things like verse 35, the time of day. Verse 36, that they brought Jesus onto the boat, quote, just as he was. Verse 36 again, that the statement that other boats were with them. That's completely incidental to what occurs. And yet, it bears the marks of authenticity because it's the kind of thing an eyewitness, the little detail that an eyewitness would remember. Verse 38, the exact position of Jesus in the boat. Verse 38 again, the mention of this cushion. And I could go on and on. These details are both accurate and unnecessary. Which is another suggestion that what you're reading is not myth or fable or legend, but is actual reported history. Interestingly, the only place that Jesus is recorded as sleeping in the Gospels, and we have no reason to think he didn't sleep like a normal person. There were some nights, we know, he stayed up all night communing with his Father in heaven, but he was an ordinary person like us when it came to his human nature. He grew weary, he grew tired. This is a great example. But this is the only time in the Gospels that we read he was sleeping. It's interesting that the only time we find him sleeping is in a storm. Well, the disciples weren't happy with this either. Verse 38, the disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I mean, these disciples are totally at the end of themselves. They're they're despairing of life itself. They're out of options. And so they run to the only one on the boat who might possibly have some last trick up his sleeve, some last wonder-working, miracle-working thing to prevent them from the inevitable, from plunging into the bottom of the sea. And in the Hebrew mindset, based on Old Testament scriptures, the, the sea itself wasn't just a, a tame thing. The, the, the sea represented the darkness of chaos and evil. It's not coincidental that Pharaoh's army, or let's even rewind the clock more, it's not coincidental that, that the Lord drowns a wicked world in the sea with a flood. And then that the Lord drowns Pharaoh's army in the sea. And that even baptism is a picture as we are plunged into the waters of baptism. It is a symbol of being buried in death and then raised to life. But notice their plea here when they come to Jesus. Of all the things they could say in the heat of the moment, their plea is not exactly a study in humility. I mean, imagine being, I mean, maybe you're more godly than me, so you won't be able to relate to this. But this is what came to my mind as I was thinking about it. I was thinking, if I'm dead asleep in the middle of the night, and I'm suddenly shaken awake 
by one of my kids. Now, if, if my kid says, help, there's fire in the house, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burst out of bed. I'm going to, you know, go see what this situation is, try to save them. But if what the kid leads with is, you know, essentially slapping me in my sleep, do you not care about all the smoke we're dying from? You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to burst out of bed, but I'm also going to be a little annoyed. Like, what are you talking about? This is an accusation masquerading as a question. But Jesus is unlike me. All right. I, I, I don't, I'm not great at overlooking offenses. Jesus knows how to overlook an offense. And so he doesn't even rebuke the question. He just rebukes the storm. That's the next verse, or, or the next point. Jesus shouts. Jesus shouts. Verse 39, he got up. Now, we would expect to read, if this were an account of an ordinary person, of, of a good moral teacher. We would expect to read something like verse 39, he got up and joined them in their fear. But of course, that's not what he does at all. Instead, he sets his sights on the object of their fear. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still, Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. We think the storm came on them fast. It wasn't nearly as fast as it subsided. This didn't happen gradually over the sake of 30 minutes. The storm didn't die down. The boat didn't stop rocking over the course of three minutes. This was immediate, as if the clouds were thrown from the sky and the sea became as a mirror. As it, it was as if an omnipotent hand brushed away the clouds and smoothed out the glass. We read earlier in our scripture reading from Psalm 107, which is just a taste of the Old Testament's witness to the fact that there is only one being in charge of the sea. Only one being who can silence the waves. You don't need to turn to these places, but I just want you to hear a bit of a refrain. This is the consistent witness from just the book of Psalms. I'm just limiting myself to Psalms. Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord, Yahweh, is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waves. Psalm 65, you stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the nations. Psalm 77, the waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. Psalm 89, who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 104, at your rebuke, 
There's that same word from Mark 4. At your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Psalm 107, which is in your service guide. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Again, Mark 4, 39. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. This ain't no ordinary rabbi. There is only one category big enough for someone to to describe someone who can talk to a hurricane like it's a barking puppy and watch it be muzzled. And that category, the only category large enough to describe someone who can do that is the category of deity. Christians have always confessed this truth derived from the pages of God's word, pages like this one. Mark 4, that Jesus is one person with two natures. Not two persons with one nature, not two persons with two natures, but one person with two distinct but inseparable natures, divine and human. The eternal Son of God who has taken on humanity, who has become a man, in order to live in our place and pay for our sins. Colton, our service leader, quoted briefly from our statement of faith. We did not compare notes beforehand, so I'm going to do it again. Same exact sentence. We are operating on the same wavelength, but this is too good not to quote again. Article 6, on the mediator, every one of you who has joined this church has affirmed the truth of these words, but I want you to also hear the beauty of them. Jesus Christ unites in his person, so there it is, not in his persons, he unites in his person the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections. And as such, is qualified in every way to be a suitable, compassionate, and all-sufficient Savior. Mark wants us to make eye contact with this reality that Jesus is a man who does what only God can do. Jesus is a man who does what only God can do. In his human nature, he needs sleep. In his divine nature, He shouts at nature and watches it behave. Don't miss the fact that Jesus didn't perform, he didn't perform this miracle through some sort of sophisticated incantation or spell, but through his authoritative word. The Son of God speaks and creation bows at the sound of his voice. And then, amid the the sudden silence, He turns his voice from the storm to the ones who have been spared. 
verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, on one level, I cannot relate with this question because I would have been terrified. It's like, what do you mean, Jesus? Why are we afraid? Maybe because we almost died seven seconds ago? But Jesus is not playing dumb. And he's not trying to play games with them. The, the, the accent of what Jesus is, is trying to say to them is here on the second question, do you still have no faith? In other words, have you forgotten who's in the boat? Was I really your last resort? Now, I think it could be easy when we read a statement like that. Do you still have no faith? To think of faith as just this sort of floating noun, right? This, this abstract floating thing, almost like a balloon, right? That, you're, that sometimes we can grab it, sometimes we, we lose its grip. Do you have faith? Well, I don't know. Is the balloon still in my hand? You tell me. But according to the Bible, that's not what faith is at all. Faith is simply trust in an object. See, Jesus here is not expecting them to catch something or to conjure up something. He's not just saying like, come on, gin up some faith. He's asking them to trust him. It's like, guys, after everything you've heard me teach, seen me do? Did you really think I was going to die on this boat without completing the mission my father gave me? Do, do you really think that my journey from the splendors of heaven at the right hand of the father was going to end during the night in a Galilean lake? As one old Puritan put it, he does not chide them. That is, Jesus does not rebuke the disciples. He does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. He's not rebuking them for a lack of knowledge. He's not rebuking them for acting human. He's rebuking them for acting as if he is merely human. But, there, but it goes even deeper than this because it's not just that the disciples are failing to reckon with his divine nature. But also, Mark records them questioning something that, even, that stings even more. I alluded to it earlier. The question Mark records is not them asking whether he's God. It's asking whether he's good. Do you not care? Do you not care that we're about to die? Sinclair Ferguson writes, it was the cruelest question they could have asked. 
it was the cruelest question they could have asked because the very reason he was in the boat. Indeed, the world was precisely because he cared for them. This story will remain underappreciated by us and underapplied in our lives if we stop at marveling, if we, if we only marvel at the power of Jesus, but not also at his love. Earlier, we sang the, the song, Holy, 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 in which we declared that he is merciful and mighty. And this story is calling us to behold, to celebrate, to fall on our faces and worship the God who is simultaneously and gloriously both. Not mercy at the expense of might, not might at the expense of mercy, as if these are like hats that Jesus can put on one at a time and has to, can only wear one at a time. No, he is always simultaneously, majestically both, merciful and mighty. Well, how did the disciples respond to Jesus' response? Verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, this is a better question. This, in fact, is the right question to be asking. Don't you care if we drown? That's not the right question. Who is this? That's the right one. What's so interesting is that it says they were terrified. Remember, the sea right now is glass. The there's not a cloud in the sky. But they're terrified. Their fear didn't vanish when the storm did. Actually, it intensified. Because they're now, listen to me, friends, they are now staring at something more majestic and terrifying than a storm. They're bewildered with awe. I want you to see this progression. Look back at verse 37. How does Mark describe this squall? Furious. The word is megale. It's like a mega storm. Verse 39, look at the end. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. The word again is megale. From mega storm to mega calm. And then verse 41. They were terrified. Guess what word? Megale. From great storm, from a great storm, verse 37, to great calm, verse 39, to great fear. Verse 41. And again, the mega fear. I mean, fear 
was occurring before the storm was over, obviously. But the mega fear, Mark says, only occurs after the mega storm has subsided. Because the only thing scarier than being in a little boat in a big storm is being in a little boat with a man who shouts at big storms and succeeds. Now you'll notice that I have not yet made the application that it's easy to rush immediately to, which is Jesus is with you in the storms of life. I actually think that's a valid application, textually warranted. But it's downstream from this most important application which is answering that most important of questions. Who is this? A God-man who is merciful and mighty. But that said, it is right for us to reflect on the fact that though we are not on a Galilean lake, in a boat with the physical Son of God incarnate, that we do have him with us in the storms of life, in the, the times when the winds and the waves are battering our boat. He himself told us, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus can take your greatest storm, friends, I mean, that's what I want you to see from this progression. It's not just a cute little thing. Oh, three times a Greek word appears. No, it's like mega storm leads to mega calm, leads to mega fear, which reveals that God can take your greatest storms and turn them into the greatest of calms. But here's the thing. He doesn't do it always by stilling the storm in an instant. Sometimes God does choose to calm the storm. But often, perhaps more often in this broken world, he doesn't so much calm the storm as he lets the storm rage and calms his child. He calms us in it. Jesus never promised us a life without storms. The idea that a believer will have a storm-free existence is a lie from the pit of hell. But Jesus does promise to be enough for us. To be enough for us when the winds and the waves of life. Anxiety, loneliness, desire for marriage, difficulties in marriage, Frustrations in parenting, career setbacks, financial stress, the ravages of cancer, the certainty of death. You can add to this list, but when these winds and waves batter us and threaten to capsize our souls, Jesus says, I'm there and I'm enough for you. Because often the greatest miracle, friends, the greatest miracle he performs, I'm not saying it's the most enjoyable miracle for us, but often the greatest one is not the stilling of the storm, but the sustaining of the saints in the storm. 
To put it another way, sometimes he delivers us from storms, yes. Sometimes he will deliver you from storms, but usually he'll deliver you through the storm. I mean, let's just, let's just be honest and reflect on the fact. Do, do you, I mean, we all wish for sunny days. We don't wish for trials and suffering, nor should we. But, but, we ought not be offended or surprised when they come because they are measured out in infinite wisdom and love and nothing can make it to you if it hasn't passed through the omnipotent and loving hand of your triune God. I mean, do you really look back on the sunniest, cloudless days of your life and say, that is when I became who I am today. That season where I, I got the raise and my kids were doing well, and we had perfect health, oh man, that molded me. That formed me. No, you're all smirking because you know that's not how it works. God loves us too much to leave us in the sunshine forever. L listen to how uh, Charles Spurgeon reflected on this truth. I bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things, the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. And then Spurgeon, the king of metaphors, just goes crazy. He, he just said, bear with him. Our father's wagons rumble most heavily when they're bringing us the richest freight of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Again, we're not promised a storm-free life. And one of the painful lessons from this story is we shouldn't want one. Because it's impossible to know Jesus as the Lord of the storm from the safety of the shore. It is impossible to know the Lord of the storm from the safety of the shore, which means that so much of God's love in your life, you all want to experience the love of God. So much of his love can only be experienced on the waters, in the dark, the darkest days and nights of your, of your life. 
But the good news, friends, is we're not stuck here forever. You're not going to be in this roiling darkness forever. Where did the disciples end up? I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but look at chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. In other words, they made it. Jesus had said in verse 35, let's go to the other side, and that's exactly where they ended up. And believer, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Not just in spite of the storms, but because of the storms that he sends you through along the way. Well, earlier I noted that after asking the wrong question in verse 38, don't you care if we drown? The disciples asked the right one in verse 41. Who in the world is this? It's the first time the, the question, who is this, has been asked in Mark's gospel. Not the last, but it is the first. But it's not the first time a question like it has been asked. Just, just briefly turn back to chapter 1, I want to show you over the course of this series how Mark has stitched his gospel together. These chapters are not disconnected from one another. Chapter 1, verse 27, the people were all amazed that they asked each other, all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even orders, gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. I find it interesting that a good question there in 127 has become a better question in our passage. Chapter 1, what is this? Chapter 4, who is this? The, the question has become personalized for the disciples, and it is personalized for you. And what answer does Mark provide? Look what answer Mark provides at the end of chapter 4 for the question, who is this? Verse 42. Oh wait, there's no verse 42. Mark leaves his most important question unanswered and open-ended because it's up to you, the reader, to supply your answer. His account simply ends with our gaze fixed on the man in the boat with the words, who is this, who is this, who is this, ringing in our ears and demanding an answer. Well, as I conclude... I know we've been looking at various places in Scripture. I promise I'll only take you to one more here at the end. 800 years before this scene on the Sea of Galilee, another storm hit another sea in the Mediterranean. It's the story of Jonah. And the parallels between Jonah 1 and Mark 4 are too striking and too numerous to be mere coincidence. 
two men, each asleep in a boat, each woken up by sailors screaming, we're going to die in this storm. One man is exhausted from evading ministry. The other is exhausted from doing ministry. Jonah is sleeping like a baby in false peace. Jesus is sleeping like a baby in true peace. And just as in the story of Jonah, the Lord hurls the wind and the storm, here the Lord stands up and hushes it with a word. The two stories, Jonah asleep on the boat, Jesus asleep on the boat, are almost identical, but there's a difference. There's a difference. During the storm, 800 years prior, Jonah says, throw me overboard. My life for yours. If I die, you'll live. And they finally do it. They throw Jonah overboard into that place of chaos and death. That does not happen here in Mark 4, does it? But his hour will come. The man who will call himself one greater than Jonah is not running from God's mission for him the way Jonah did. He's embracing it. I find it ironic that the disciples rebuke Jesus for sleeping at their scariest hour. <laughs> Garden of Gethsemane, they will be sleeping at his. On the night he'll be betrayed and arrested and brought to trial. See, this, friends, this is why Jesus couldn't have died in the boat. He couldn't have died in that storm because he had not just come to still a storm on the Lake of Galilee. He had come to confront and to face down a much greater storm. And after the betrayal and arrest and trial, he will be willingly pinned to a Roman cross. And on that cross, he will be plunged into the floodwaters of God's righteous justice. Floodwaters that were due to us. See, see, Jonah was a prophet thrown overboard for his own sin. He deserved it. Jesus, the final prophet, the Son of God, was thrown overboard for our sin. We all deserve the floodwaters of, of God's justice because of our sin, because of the way we built our lives around things other than God. The way we failed to behold him as mighty and merciful. But the good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to dive in and perish instead of us so that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but experience everlasting life and calm and peace with God. In Romans 8.32, Paul says, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If God took care of the most expensive gift, he's not going to skimp on the wrapping paper. 
And it's the logic from the greater to the lesser. If God in Christ took care of your greatest storm, the storm that your sins deserved, you can trust him in the smaller storms of life every step of the way. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for sending Jesus to be the God-man, the storm-stiller, the one who talks to nature like a puppy and the one who loves those you came to save. Help us to see and to savor you as merciful and mighty and to trust you amid the storms of life. Thank you that though we may be afraid, we will never be alone. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.